BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello and happy Halloween, cinephiles. I am Steve Morris here with my partner, John Roca. Here's Johnny. <laughs> and, and this is something we just realized is that the cinephiles has now been coming out for seven years. And that means that this year we have recorded our seventh Halloween special, which of yeah. course is the 1931 Frankenstein. Well, seven is also the number of the days of the week. And it suddenly occurred to me that we can put out a Halloween episode every day leading up to Halloween. And the first one is our very first scary episode, which John already hinted at. And that is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Yeah. Um, we're back at it again in the conversation. Oh, Steve and I just did Room 237 as our... Um, uh, watch along. And so for those of you who are patrons, hopefully you enjoyed our conversation and, and our debate and back and forth conversation about some of the theories and um, speculation that was in that movie. And so we thought, well, let's, you know what, well, Steve kicked around the idea of us releasing these Holly, Halloween movies one day, uh, one for every day. And I was like, well, let's do some intros. And so uh, we're doing that now. And uh, look, The Shining is one that is, um, still i think a film that endures and people think about and consider and go back to as one of these great horror films it almost feels like there's been a bit of a kubrick assance people have been talking mm -hmm. about stanley kubrick again on social media and in all these in letterbox and all these other areas i've seen the conversations about him pop up again in his movies and a reappreciation of what he brought uh, as there's these battles out here between like superhero movies and actual cinema that whole uh, argument. Uh, Kubrick is someone who comes along and is respected by both sides of that debate. And certainly The Shining is one of those movies. Why? You know? Well, I think when Kubrick takes on a genre, he mm. transcends that genre. So 2001 mm. is obviously a science fiction movie, but it is so much more than a science fiction movie. It's an art movie. It's a movie about ideas. It's a movie with deep philosophy and mysticism. And The Shining it is a horror movie, and there's some damn scary moments in it, particularly around room 3237 and those twins. But it also has, and, and while I disagreed with some of the theories in room 237, the fact that Kubrick feels like he's dealing with something bigger is definitely true. And there's 
it really stands alone, that film, as its own thing. It has its own tone, its own pace, and also those incredible Stanley Kubrick shots and those incredible performances from Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and my favorite, one of my favorite humans, Scatman Crothers. I mean, you know, it is just quite a film. I'm going to resist doing a Scatman Crothers imitation so I can Wise. not get Wise. canceled. Yeah. But yeah, I agree, Stephen. You know, this is what's so interesting about this movie, too, is of course it's it kind of diverges. Well, it doesn't kind of, it does diverge from the source material, the Stephen King book. It kind of walks its own path, which of course we've heard were issues between King and Kubrick about all of that. Um, but he it it establishes this family dynamic that is real interesting and unsettling to explore. You know, Jack Nicholson fully dialing into that kind of maniacal glee of his. Shelley Duvall is the put upon, you know, kind of mousy woman, but who who is also has what you discover as the film goes along has a really a strong spine of steel to fight back against Jack and to save his her son Danny. So we see those interactions, but of course, there's something. And I'm, again, I'm going to walk into the minefield as I tend to do lately. But like the idea of having a relative who goes down a wormhole and becomes obsessed with this thing that it affects their ability to think rationally and endangers the lives of his family. You know, we see the, we see what can happen as we're, as we watch room two, three, seven, and all these ideas of what they think Kubrick was doing. And some of them related to conspiracy theories about the moon landing, about, you know, native American stuff, about all this stuff that was going on, the Holocaust, um, all these things that were possibly the film meant, we see also that it all the way comes back to the fact that this is a guy who becomes obsessed because he's on his own and he gives in to the temptation to believe all this stuff that's going on. And it it kind of twists him around to be to put his own family in danger, even though he's the caretaker of not only the hotel, but his family as well. So it's a fascinating exploration of what can happen. Um, if you allow your mind to go down the wrong wormholes and what can happen to everyone around you as you yourself become more and more obsessed with finding out the truth of this thing. Well, I think that's the fascinating thing about the movie. And, you know, the moment uh, to me of no work and no play make Jack a toll boy, yeah. it's, it's, it's amazing that something so simple can be so terrifying <laughs> when you see that happen. And, and this is just the first of our Halloween films. We're not going to do we're not going to do new intros for all of these. But I thought right. we'd give you a little preview of what's coming next, because our second Halloween movie we ever did is, of course, John Carpenter's Halloween. That was our second Halloween film, the origin of the slasher film, one of the most iconic and most successful independent films of all time. John, how what's your general feeling about Halloween? Ooh, oh, I still love that movie. It's, of course, the best one of the franchise still, no matter how many times they, they try to redo it or reboot it or do a requel on it or whatever they want to call it these days. I, I, I still love that movie and uh, for what it perfectly does, uh, it's up there. You know, John Carpenter has a number of films that are in the greatness basket. And Halloween is, along with The Thing, is one of those that's in the greatness basket. And it's one that still endures, still affects people today, still works on new generations. New generations discover Halloween every year and appreciate the brilliance and the genius of how John Carpenter constructed that movie to have the ultimate effect uh, with a Michael Myers character that is an evil that you cannot pin down. You cannot figure out how it came to be. It just is. 
And certainly nowadays, we've sensed evil around the corner everywhere we go. And so, and, and so I like that this film still works in that way, an, an unknown evil that comes after you and won't stop. How do you deal with that? How do you fight back against it? How do you protect the people you love or the people you're in charge of? And so that it works so well, plus the iconic score and the scary moments. I mean, just that scene with Lori in the closet. I've never stayed in a closet ever <laughs> since uh, because of that scene where you see him just like bashing through the door and trying to stab her. And she has to fight him off with a fucking wire hanger, for God's sake. So, yeah. Great, great stuff of this movie. Still one that I, whenever I hear it mentioned, I get a chill in my spine. Well, and after that, we're going to have our brand new episode that I'm we recorded yesterday. I'm editing as we speak, and that is 1931 Frankenstein. And I think you'll, you'll have to wait until Friday to hear our thoughts on that. But needless <laughs> to say, we have a lot of them. And then following that is another 80s, is an 80s classic yeah. horror film, and that is Nightmare on Elm Street, which I can remember sitting in my apartment in Walnut Creek, California <laughs> with my friends watching it on VHS for the same time. And you know that you do the thing where you're like with the guys and you have to pretend that you're not scared shitless. That's totally what I was doing when I was watching that movie. <laughs> how, how do you feel about Nightmare on Elm Street? It, it, to, to me, it's a, it's not as powerful as something like 1978's Halloween, but that Robert England portrayal is incredible. And I like, as we're becoming more and more aware of the mind and how the mind can like mess with you and make you see things that aren't there, or uh, as we become more aware of people are like studying dreams and what a dream means, the, the symbolism of dreams, the film has a power to it. You know, it is, a, its tongue is firmly planted in its cheek because of the playful nature of the villain of Freddy Krueger, but the kills are violent. The imagery is bloody and gory and scary and unsettling. So for all the hazy, filtered, cheesy moments, there are some really brutal, scary, unsettling moments in that film that still work to this day. So uh, I have nothing but respect for Nightmare on M Street. And certainly a lot of people still love that movie. And in 2020, I think we tackled what arguably is one of the if not the scariest films of all time mm. and that is the exorcist and <laughs> i needless to say i haven't watched the exorcist since we did it on the cinephiles <laughs> and i don't know when i'm going to because that movie genuinely scares me yeah steven i just saw the exorcist believer with the return of ellen burston reprising a role from the first movie not as good obviously as the as the original film uh but i did enjoy her being in the film so it was nice to kind of touch base with her again but yeah, I agree with you, Steve. This is one I do not go back to and watch a lot. It was banned in my house as a Christian, Spanish, or Latino immigrant's uh, house. Uh, it was not allowed to be played in the house, and neither was Rosemary's Baby. These two films that deal with the devil were not allowed to be played in the house until, uh, and I didn't see them until much later in my life, but the effect of The Exorcist still endured. And I actually appreciate the acting in the film, right? For those, for you and I, Steve, Big, big admirers of Lee J. Cobb, seeing him in a film like this is so much fun. For me, having grown up in D.C., seeing areas of Georgetown in the film, I thought really cool, the iconic score. But then the added scenes, the spider walk down the stairs, all that stuff, the screaming, the, uh, the pea soup, the cross stuff, everything that happens, Max von Sydow's death, and then, of course, the what happens at the end with the young priest. So all of that endures, but, of course, Burstyn's acting and Linda Blair's acting through the whole movie are the things that really tie everything together, their relationship and their connection and chemistry with each other. And I, uh, it's a film that I absolutely love and respect, but like Steve, I don't put that one on yeah. often 
if at all, unless I have to. I, I think like The Shining, The Exorcist is one that transcends genre. Like yeah. it is, it goes into that world of great film, greatly disturbing film, but <laughs> great film. Um, and then uh, our next film, I would say, is a little bit lighter on the Halloween side. Mm. And that was two years ago when we did Scream. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Scream. I know a lot of people love Scream. Uh, I don't have the reverence for Scream that other people do, but certainly it's a film that I respect uh, other people loving. And of course, it spawned numerous sequels that we're still going through today. Uh, there's apparently another one on the way as well. They've changed directors and there'll be a new Scream coming soon. But um, it's it's obviously a franchise that I think was built to take advantage of the 90s kids who grew up loving this other stuff and they got deep into this one and enjoyed it. And you see that it affects people and people do have a love and a reverence for Scream uh, from top to bottom. And uh, Nev Campbell being great in the film, Courtney Cox, a great uh, collection of actors who have been part of this franchise for quite some time. And I had the chance to interview Jamie Kennedy about it one time on my channel a year or two ago. And he is still speaks about that film with a lot of respect and reverence and love. So even the people involved in it understand its importance and how much fun and scary the film is at the same time. Well, and I think it was, although I feel about the film kind of the way you do, it's mm. kind of a perfect film to talk about on the cinephiles because yeah. it's so much a movie about movies and yeah. we are a podcast about <laughs> movies. And so that was a podcast about movies that were about movies. And I think that worked really well. Yeah. And uh, last year, of course, in honor of the great James Caan, we dove into the Stephen King story, the Rob Reiner film of Misery. Yeah. Oh, Ooh, misery. That was a fun conversation for sure. Really enjoyed revisiting that one and the ankling uh, and the performance from James Caan. And of course, the emergence of Kathy Bates as a, as a powerful, incredible actress who has been a part of our lives now for decades since that movie. Uh, and, you know, Rob Reiner showing you still at that time that he was able to jump into different genres and be successful. And certainly Misery is a great example of that with some very memorable scenes. And, you know, like any great horror film, Steve, it's got to have memorable scenes, memorable, violent scenes. And certainly there are a few of them. And you've got to feel that tragedy that almost escape until the final moment when they do escape and all that happens to make that happen. And if maybe she might have survived anyway. So I kind of love that it sticks to the basic plot of most of the horror films, yet it works in a unique and interesting way. And another great Stephen King translation like The Shining. Well, and I think... Um my feeling, and I know I said it when we talked about it, is that this is one of the best crafted films that mm. I can think of, just in terms of how every single moment is put together. 100%. It is beautifully made. And and that is our week of Halloween on the Cinephiles. And I think we've call, covered a wide variety of films from 1931 all the way up to, I think, uh, Misery is, no, Scream is the most recent one. Some that are more fun, some that are more scary, beautifully crafted, classic monsters. And I hope you enjoy our very first one starting right now with our exploration of The Shining on The Cinephiles. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about The Cinephiles' new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap... 
or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Has it ever occurred to you that I have agreed to look after the Overlook Hotel until May the 1st? Does it matter to you at all that the owners have placed their complete confidence and trust in me and that I have signed a letter of agreement, a contract in which I have accepted that responsibility? You have the slightest idea what a moral and ethical principle is, do you? Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everybody. I'm John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist and host of numerous shows here in Los Angeles. And first of all, I want to apologize because you might hear the sound of my voices. Not quite the mellifluous tones you might be used to. <laughs> nice word. But uh, I was thinking about it on the way over here. <laughs> Hello. But uh, I got a bit of a cold, but we're going to muddle through. We are. Well, I mean, and here's the deal. Uh, we do this content for free. So sometimes we're not going to be at optimal uh, conditions to get the stuff done on time. So it just happened to be that you're sick. So that's all right. What we need to work on is the uh, healthcare system for free podcasting. Oh, that's right. That's right. Because I feel that we deserve some support. We need to create to... a lobby for that. That's that, for sure. I think it's going to be a very small but vocal lobby. That's right. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, today's film is one we've been asked about for a long time. Yeah. A lot of people have been asking for us to do a film from Stanley Kubrick. And, yeah. and Stanley Kubrick is... He might be the great, maybe along with Orson Welles, the great mythical genius mm. of American film. He seems to be put on this pedestal that's really unlike almost any other filmmaker. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. What's amazing about Stanley is that he crosses so many different genres in terms of the type of film. I mean, it's very correlative to the Coen brothers. You can put him in any different type of film, and he will find a way to create and make it his own. Uh, aside from maybe Spartacus, I would say, just about every yeah, other Spartacus film. Spartacus is the outlier. Right. Just about every other film really has the Kubrick signature to it uh, and up until AI, right? So you get, after Spartacus, all the way up until AI, I think you know you're watching a Kubrick film and he jumps from something like Barry Lyndon to something like Full Metal Jacket to something like The Shining, you know, to all these different types of something like Paths of Glory, which is a fantastic film. So you have all these different things. And so for him to tackle horror in the way that he did, it's such a such a Kubrickian film. That's what I would say. Yeah. You know? I, th I think Coen Brothers are a perfect example, a metaphor, because yeah. what's interesting about the Coen Brothers and interesting about Kubrick 
is even if they're doing different genres, Kubrick, you're going to see a sci-fi film or a war right. film or a historical epic. What you're really going to see is a Kubrick film. Absolutely. And that's definitely true of the Coen brothers in a way that it's not true of Steven Spielberg or, mm -hmm. you know, you know the, the, and Kubrick is Kubrick. It's the no definition matter. of an auteur. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so let's go back a little bit. Sure. Uh, I want to I want to just go back and talk a little bit about Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. I know we're going to talk about him again, and we're talking to probably multiple times on this show. Probably. But so he is grew up in New York. He's the child of uh, Jewish Eastern European immigrants. Not a terrible student, but not a particularly good student. Mm -hmm. Always fascinated by literature and photography. Seemed to be the, one of these kids that had an inquisitive mind, but mm -hmm. that didn't fit into the structure of school right ended up at a fairly young age i think 15 or 16 selling his first photographs and became a magazine photographer wow and during that time and this is in the mid 40s he um became really obsessed with film in the way that we're going to see him be obsessed for the rest of his life he is not a guy who kind of enjoys things in a casual way right when he go he would go to the movie over and over and over again and apparently he would um bring a newspaper and whenever people were talking in the movie, he would read his newspaper. And when the talking stopped, he put away the newspaper and, and study the film and watch it over and over and over again. He was interested wow. in visual storytelling. Right. Um, made a few small documentaries that he paid for himself, short films. Mm -hmm. um, sold a few of them. Began making independent uh, films in the early 50s, which had limited success mm -hmm. and later have become interesting films to look at. His first commercial success, which is still not a real commercial success, is The Killing. Yes, uh, with Burt, Lan Burt Lancaster? No, no it's uh, Sterling, Sterling Hayden. Hayden. Yeah, Sterling Hayden. Yeah. Really cool movie. Yeah. Really cool. It's a low-budget crime movie. It, mm -hmm. is, it is really like a beautifully made kind of noir crime drama. Right. And, that, and through that, he meets uh, Kirk Douglas, and they make his next film. So he's made these little documentaries, fairly small independent film, and his next film is Paths of Glory. Right. And Paths of Glory is fantastic. It really is. One of these films that nobody talks about, one of these war films that nobody talks about, that really explores the ugly side of war and not just war politics of yeah. war you know and the futility of war yeah. and the madness of war and you have this one character kirk douglas yeah. trying to fight for justice and in the system that's just insane yeah and, and it's really in paths of glory i think that you start to see what are going to become those kubrick touches you got to start to see those long tracking shots you start to see the use of deep space of one yeah. point perspective that sort of visual style that's really kubrick's and he begins to do the thing which becomes he becomes famous for, which is take after take after take yeah. after take after take. After Paths of Glory, he makes Spartacus, which is the biggest movie ever made at that time. Right. And this is, you know, it's like his third, his fourth movie. And, and Kirk brought him in on that. Kirk, Kirk brought him right? in. Because he was another director had started. Yeah. yeah. And Spartacus, I think, as you said, is the least Kubricking yes. of the movies. It's, it's a really good movie, mm -hmm. but it's a very different kind of film. Then on to Lolita, uh, Dr. Strangelove, which is a fantastic film I'd love yes. to talk about. 2001. And then after 2001, he only makes one, two, three, four films. Yeah. You know, over the... And so, so what's one of the interesting things about Kubrick is how few films he actually makes mm -hmm. over a 50-year period. Yeah. You know, from 1950 until 2000, Eyes Wide Shut being his last film, yeah. it's a very few movies. And yeah. he, he develops a reputation for being a meticulous, detailed-oriented, I'm going to spend three or four or five or six years planning to make a film. Right. I'm going to spend a really long time shooting it. I'm going to do 
10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 takes yeah. to get exactly what I want. I'm going to edit it meticulously and I'm going to release exactly the film that I wanted to make. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you look at those films, that comes through that. But even in something like Clockwork Orange, which is right. really one of the most unsettling films I've ever seen, he the scenes that are are they're constructed in such a certain way that they that they uh, achieve ultimate emotional uh, you know what they're going for emotionally in those scenes they achieve it and I think that's that's what whatever I enjoy that is. yeah whatever that is it, and, and in a movie like Clockwork Orange yeah. or The Shining I I don't know what I'm feeling yes that's one of the things about Kubrick is you're feeling something yeah. And the def- you don't go like, oh, I feel sad. Yeah. No, you can't watch Clockwork Orange and go, I feel sad. You go, I, I mean, like there are moments in Clockwork Orange where you find yourself siding with yeah. a complete psychopath. Yes. And enjoying it on yeah. some real, I mean, Clockwork Orange, that's definitely a movie I would love to talk about yeah. in here too, is like a movie that it brings you into the horribleness yes. in this really unsettling way. Yeah. I- yeah. So the, we, you gave a little bit of a hint, but we haven't actually okay. said which one of the Kubrick films we're doing. And right. we were thinking, you know, as, as we said in sort of our mission statement, we want to do every single genre. We don't, we don't want to favor dramas over comedies right. or action films over something else. And, and one genre that we haven't done is a horror film. Yeah. And so we're going to do 1980s film, The Shining, based on the Stephen King novel. Yeah. So John, how'd you first come to The Shining? I think I came, I came to it like uh, maybe in the last 20 years. Um, really? I was never a big horror guy. I just don't like, like I like really good horror. Like Halloween I saw when I was young. Or Friday the 13th, those slasher films, you know what I'm saying? But The Shining was something that I resisted for a long time. But though I'd seen the, here's Johnny, I'd seen that used, you know, Johnny Carson used it. You'd seen it, but like I'd never seen the movie because just like Rosemary's Baby, I've never seen Rosemary's Baby. Like there are certain films that to me, I had to really drag myself to and put myself through because I had a feeling it was going to mess me up big time. And I just had a feeling about this film that it was going to mess me up and damn if it didn't and damn if it doesn't every time I watch it. Yeah, it, it it's funny watching it again for this show. I think it affected me more than ever. Yeah, and and I think it's because I have a kid now. Right. You know. Oh, it's so, a great point. So I watched it really mm-hmm. differently. For me, um, somewhere around eighty eighty one, my parents subscribed to Showtime. Oh. And there's certain movies that came on Showtime. Right. That I watched a lot, and I watched them as we've talked about on the show before. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily from the beginning, but you come in in the middle, and right. I'm telling you, you come in in the middle of The Shining. You're going to stay till the end. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is something I wanted to talk about with uh, Kubrick, and particularly this film, is that there is a tone here that you get, and that's almost what's holding you in, because the pace mm-hmm. of the film is really, really slow. Yeah, it's languid, yeah. Yeah, yeah, languid's a good word. Yeah. Like, you're going to, but there's something about it that you just can't stop watching yes. once you get into it. Yeah. And you would think it'd be boring because it's these large halls, this very old uh, 1940s, 50s type of vibe to it. It's very weird with the Native American kind of mixture with this gold colors. Like it's just a very weird combination of styles that feels very dated. But yet it's engrossing with how it keeps you in it because it's so expansive you feel like you can never get out of the place it's so big and oh yeah you're constantly exploring the rooms whether on danny's big wheel or watching jack and uh shelly duvall get the tour uh, or what have you you're seeing so many the expansive of the maze the expanse of the maze all of it just seems so large and engrossing it's almost like you're exploring the corridors of your own mind you know and i think that's such a great for me has always been symbolic of the of the overlook hotel that it's your mind 
you know um i think that's absolutely right and i think the metaphor of the maze yeah is key for yeah. the film i mean the the both both like one of the interesting things have you read the book by the way yes um, and the book, one of the big controversies is the book is quite different. Yes, it is. It's, I had never read it until two weeks ago. I decided. Oh, I was, wow. I'd want, I like Stephen King right. a lot. And I hadn't, and I was like, oh, well, we're going to do this podcast. It had actually was sitting on my list on my little Audible account. I was like, <laughs> might as well do it. I found the book to be less different than I expected. Mm -hmm. They they are different. And uh, what what do you think of the book, by the way? I enjoy the book a lot. I think it is different in terms of the power of the uh, of how deep he goes into his mania is really highlighted in the book. There's more of that explored. Um, I love the the fact that the the whole idea of him driving a red. But a red bug versus the yellow bug. Like there's all these little things that are in the book that are different than the movie, but give you an idea that what Kubrick was doing was his version of Stephen King's The Shining. He wasn't doing Stephen King's The Shining. I mean, the difference between the red bug and the yellow bug, that to me is like, who, who cares? You know, <laughs> it's symbolic to me. I, yeah, I, I, to, to me, that's just, you know, if you read books and see movies, yeah. that kind of stuff has changed okay. all the time. The, the bigger ones to me are things. So in the book, there's clearly a haunting at the, at yeah. the hotel. Yeah. The haunting has a clear, malevolent voice. Yeah. You hear the voice. That haunting, whatever that evil spirit is that's haunting the hotel, wants Danny. That's actually yeah. the main plot of the movie is that it's using Jack as a means to get Danny. Right. So, so that's one element that's just very... Whereas in the movie, while there are clearly mystical things happening, yeah. it's much turned down um, in right. a way. In, in, in the sense of there isn't a ghost, right. you know, an evil thing that makes sense and has a motivation and a goal. Right. The, the other difference, which I find really interesting, is because the book is very internal. Mm -hmm. And you get to hear all three of the characters or four of the characters mm -hmm. when you add Dick Halloran. 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 Halloran yeah. I don't know why I can never remember his name. <laughs> anyway, because uh, to me, he's always Scatman. Yeah. I think that's why. Um, but what what's interesting is that because you're so in Jack's thoughts, mm. the pain of the situation is just really different. Yeah. And in particular, in, in reading some interviews with Stephen King, who hates the movie. Yes, the he way, does. Hates it is that this was written at the time when Stephen King was dealing with his uh, drug and alcohol addiction. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very personal book for him. Yeah. And it was written at a time when he saw himself as a threat to his wife yeah. and his family. And because the movie makes Jack just really a clear psychopath, yeah. um, is that that personal element and the internal torment uh, is turned way down and because the ghost in the hotel doesn't really exist mm -hmm. the external forces forcing jack to go crazy are turned down and i think those are the big differences yeah to me. and I, th I think that's gr those are all great points Steve. i think what's fascinating to watch in the movie is that he is uh jack is the focus of the movie not Danny. Absolutely. Jack is the one they want to turn. Jack is the one they want to influence to kill his family and to do exactly what the caretaker did the, the I guess the previous winter uh, and force him into that situation. But what's interesting about the presentation of, of Nicholson's character is from the beginning, you can tell he's an unstable guy. Absolutely. There, there, at no point do you think this is a very well-adjusted man with a wife and child. 
he is unhinged from the beginning, from the the way that Jack Nicholson plays him as Jack does Jack. Uh, this and, is full Jack. Yeah, this is full Jack this from is, beginning to end. In fact, this is 130% Jack. <laughs> There's no Jack that is as Jack yes. as what he does in this movie. This is where the parodies begin in yeah. this movie, yeah. But even in like when he's driving them up the road to get to the Overlook Hotel at, on closing day, the way he answers Danny with a pause, then answers, pause, then answers. You know, there's this kind of thing where they feel like they're 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 an annoyance to him rather than things he loves. And I think that's different from the book. In the book, oh, yeah. you can tell that he loves his Definitely. wife. He loves his his son. And he is struggling so hard not to go into the mania of what is being presented to him by the evil spirit that is haunting the Overlook Hotel. In this, you're it's just a matter of time. It's really a matter of time. Well, even even in the very beginning in the interview. Yes. So so we should say, by the way, as are always our warning. Oh yes. This is this is a thirty <laughs> six year old movie. Yes. We don't care about spoiling it for you. Right. If you haven't seen the film and you're a cinephile, then you should watch this film because it's a really important film in film history. You, It is beautifully crafted as every single Kubrick film is. And this is worth watching without us spoiling for it because yeah. there, there are a lot of surprises in it yeah. as any good horror movie is going to have. Right. Um, the basic story is that a, a man who's a writer and his wife and their young son are going to go live at the Overlook Hotel, which is way up above the snow line, mm -hmm. and take care of this huge, elegant, old-fashioned hotel mm -hmm. for the winter. And that in the past, there was another caretaker who murdered his wife and yes. twin daughters with an axe. And they're a little bit worried that someone might go stir crazy here. And as I mentioned in this interview, yeah. Jack, who plays Jack Nicholson, plays Jack Torrance, yeah. is suave and charming and says, no, 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 no. That's never going to happen. And right there, you know, he's full of shit. It's like no big deal to him. He's like, wait, I should take a look at this again before putting my wife and my son into something like this, you know. But for him, he's so focused. He's not a good guy in any way. There's not one redeeming thing about Jack Torrance in this film. And I think that's also what's different from the book. There's not a redeeming thing about this guy. At no point that. do you think he's, I don't, I, there's not, at no point do I f want to cheer for him. At no point do I want to feel sorry for him. At no point do I think he's fighting hard enough against the demons where it would seem as if he's being consumed rather than willingly walking into the light. You know what? You're right. There, there I, isn't. I, 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 like, it took me a second to process yeah. that, but. For between the interview where you don't trust him, the car ride where yeah. he tells his kids about the Donner Party. Right. They got snowbound one winter in the mountains. They had to resort to cannibalism in order to stay alive. I mean, there are some moments where he does show some concern about the family. Sure. But they're really small. Yeah. And they're only to get to the next goal. You know, there's not like, right. there's not the real thing. And the, like the, when he flips out on her for, for, him, for her disturbing him while he's typing. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here... You hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, what the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? She is doing all the work. He's just sitting on his ass writing. 
She is taking care of the hotel. That's what so became so clear to me as I was watching the film this time is she's the one doing all the fucking yeah. work and earning the paycheck. He's sitting on his ass writing a fucking novel. It drove me nuts to watch that because it was so clear to me that she's the hero of the story, even more so than Danny. She's the hero of the story because she's the unwitting middle party in between him, his mania, and Danny's embracing of the shining power that he has. She has to control. She has to navigate both these people going in different directions of lunacy. Which again is different from the book mm -hmm. because in the book he really is doing the work. Yeah. He does genuinely care. There's no question about that. Right. I think with The Shining, you have a guy who's already predisposed to go down this path and then eventually you just see what how the mania takes consumes him and what he does as it progresses. Well, you do see the progression of the mania within him and him slowly embracing it. And then you get to the up all the way until you get to that scene where he, uh, the caretaker that was before who died, killed oh, Grady. His, Grady comes and as the voice and lets him out of right. the food locker so that he can do what he does. Which I still don't know how that's possible. That's my big question, because it's the only time something mystical happens in the film that isn't done by someone else. Well, it's interesting you bring it up, because they debated it a lot. Oh, yeah. So in the book, it happened. In book, Grady comes and lets him out. Right. Because there is a mystical element right. in the book. And in the movie, they, uh, they wanted to never be clear. And so they debated it, and they debated it, and they finally said, you know what? We're just going to have to have it be what it is. Oh, <laughs> really? Um, okay. And, 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 and they didn't like it, and that was just sort of... We got to get him out of the uh, the pantry. Yeah. And they couldn't figure out another way to do it. And so that's what they did. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. But you said, you said earlier, I want to talk about it real quick. You said that Stephen King did not like the movie. This is something that I have uh, read about a multiple times. And Kubrick was, Kubrick didn't give a shit that he didn't like the movie. And right. then some of the, when we, we, I know maybe it's the first time we're referencing the Room 237 documentary, they mentioned that, that the overturned red bug that you see in The Shining is his way of telling uh, Stephen King, fuck you. Like for not like because Stephen King was saying from the beginning that he didn't like Kubrick's script of the film. Kubrick didn't he didn't like Kubrick's. Wait, take. where do you hear that Stephen King didn't like from the beginning Kubrick's script? Well, I read it in a couple of articles or something. I, I know that he reading. didn't like the film. Yeah, but I don't know when I don't know when Stephen King saw that the script. I imagine he if he, he to get the rights he would have had to have like no, had they, to some no, kind of thing. No, when you buy the rights to a book, but particularly yep. you. I mean, this is a book they sold the rights you know in the late seventies, right? You know. And Stephen King's not that big at that point. Right. You know, Stephen King, Carrie comes out in 74, 75. Right. This is, you know, a few books later. Yeah. And, and today, maybe he gets approv approval of who's going to write the screenplay. Right, right. Back then, I'm sure he didn't. And You don't think you heard any rumors about what they were doing to his script? You don't think he had any connections or any... I, I, have, I have no way of knowing. Okay. And you have no way of knowing I don't. That, that Red Bug is symbolic of anything. I want to I want to believe it. Sure. <laughs> Because um, I think it's perfect. I mean, I mean, because Kubrick came out later and said he didn't care that Stephen King didn't like the film. Well, I, I saw that. So Kubrick is Kubrick has adapted multiple stories. Um, yeah. He, you know, Clockwork Orange is based on a book. Yes, two thousand one is based on. It actually was a book that Arthur C. Clarke is writing at the time. Oh, Doctor Strangelove is based on a book. Mm -hmm. And on each of these books, well, actually, Clockwork Orange is surprisingly similar to the book. Yes, um, Doctor Strangelove has very little to do with. Um, Red Alert, I think, is the name of okay. the, because because yeah. uh, Red Alert mm -hmm. is a drama. It's not a comedy, right? They turn it into a comedy. So the fact that Kubrick has little respect for the source material that he's using doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, right. You know, the fact that he puts a red, he remembers this one thing for the book and places it in this moment and says, and builds a whole scene, which cost him a lot of money to shoot just to say, fuck you to Stephen King seems unlikely. Okay. Is it possible? Sure. But why would he even bother? You know? I don't know. 
Yeah. I just I just like the idea of it. I like the idea of a of a director being uh having that moment of being like a smirk. Do you know what I'm saying? A smirk to him, kind of like that that kind of thing. And and see, uh, but cha- changing books to into suit yeah. movies is the norm. Right, right. It would be it w- what would be surprising is if a if a if a movie stayed close to the book. So you think it's just a happenstance of all the cars you could have chosen, yeah. a red bug was just happenstance. Well, no, I don't think it's happenstance. Okay. What I think it is is that it's a snowy, cold, very blue shot. Right. Kubrick has excellent, like perfect color and visual control gotcha and the red bug would stand out if you had a blue bug or a green bug or a brown bug or a gray bug yeah or any other color car it would not stand out okay kubrick also has tremendous shape control because this is something we could talk about in terms of the visuals of the film so you I have feel like you're defending this i feel like you think you're defending kubrick on this i'm not defending kubrick i'm i'm i'm, <laughs> oh, I'm exploding the ridiculousness you think it's ridiculous yes All right, I do. fair enough i do all right it is is that so if i find an interview where he said i actually did that yeah on purpose then i would I would, I would, I would publicly <laughs> apologize. I would offer a full retraction to full any retraction. offense right. I gave to your family or your, <laughs> Not or your my reputation. Family. You're right on. All right. So, all right, let's get back to yes, the movie. Go ahead. Uh, let's talk a little about Jack Nicholson. Oh. We talked about something when we did um, 12 Angry Men, mm-hmm. which was we were talking about who is the Henry Fonda today and who is the this person mm. today and what actor is like that actor. Mm-hmm. There's no one like Jack. No. Jack Nicholson is one of the most unique actors of all time. Right. And he is not a chameleon. No. Jack is going to be Jack, but he actually has tremendous range. Mm-hmm. He can play very sensitive. He can play very funny. Yes. He can play something kind of delicate. He can play sad and angry. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, and better maybe than anybody in the history of film yeah. can play the manic, insane, whatever Jack can do. Yeah. I mean, and... and, and can you possibly imagine anyone else in this movie? No, I can't. No, for what the, the way Kubrick constructed it, this, uh, Jack is the, Jack is the perfect actor to play this part for what he wanted that character to do and what he wanted that character's journey to be. So for me, I don't see and like I couldn't see Warren Beatty doing it no. or Robert Redford doing it no. or Paul Newman or anybody of those people that of that ilk, Peter Fonda, anyone of that ilk that was famous at that time. I mean, Dennis Hopper would have made it a that whole. That was the only nutty. one I could think of was like. Right, but he yeah. did a version of that in Apocalypse, and it wouldn't have been it wouldn't yeah, have been the same funny. thing. It wouldn't have been the same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I can't imagine anyone else. I think what he's doing is so pure in terms of his progression into the mania. It's just it goes and goes and goes, and the moments when he you can see the moments when it's just becoming too much for him. Even he can't control because at first I think he embraced it, but then when he realized how powerful it really was, you see his inability to control it anymore his inability to understand what is real and what isn't and he just in the end just gives into it when uh what's his face lets him out of the pantry that's the moment when he's just like okay i'm gonna go full bore into this thing but he's incompetent at it he's incompetent at it he cannot kill his wife he cannot kill his kid he can only kill scatman crothers you know jumping out from behind a pole with an axe but that's the only person he kills everyone else uh he fumbles away the opportunity to do it or he takes way too long to finally come around to do it well, this this is what's true. We had a friend uh, who said, oh, well, Shining's not a horror movie, which is sort of an interesting statement. Oh, I don't understand that at all. Um, I don't agree with it. But yeah. what I do think is that, man, the, there's just this one bad guy. We do. There's almost no death throughout the whole movie right. until we get to Scatman. Right. And as you say, he's kind of incompetent. Yes. You know, and, and so I do understand to the point of following the normal structure of a horror film yeah. where you're going to get someone killed on page, you know, nine. Right. And have constant thrills and scares throughout. 
That's not what this is. No. What's interesting is, in general, Kubrick didn't work with stars. Mm-hmm. It was he would not go. Tom Cruise would be an exception. Yeah. Kirk Douglas is an exception. Right. But in general, he worked with kind of um, middle level actors because right. he didn't want to deal with the whole star thing. Of course. And he had actually wanted well, after Barry Lyndon, the next movie he wanted to do was Napoleon. Oh wow! And he wanted Jack Nicholson to play Napoleon, and they had been developing that together. No, and because Barry Lyndon wasn't a financial success, no, it wasn't. It's a boring movie. Man. It really is. I, I, it's. I think I've, I've seen it once, uh, yeah. and maybe watched scenes of it a bunch. Yeah, but yeah, it's not one I really it's want to so go back boring, to. Man. Anyway, uh, because it, it wasn't a success, right. the money fell through for Napoleon. But when he starts to think about doing The Shining, which is a much smaller movie and mm-hmm. more commercial one, he thinks. Yeah. Uh, he thinks of Jack Nicholson. And, and, and who else could do it? Right. And, 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 and I want to get to the um, doing many takes. Yeah, and, go ahead. And how he works with actors in this sense. Yeah. So I will say that yes. Stanley Kubrick's approach to working with actors and to filmmaking in general yes. is exactly what I teach my students not to do. Oh, wow. Yeah, because... That's a powerful statement. So, so Clint Eastwood's famous quote is that directing is time management. Yes. Is that it's all about being efficient on the set, being a good craftsman, planning everything in a, in a way that you can move quickly through everything and get right. the most out of the resources you have. Yeah. Everybody should feel pretty good. Everybody should feel like they're part of a team. And this is not what Kubrick does. Right. You know, Kubrick will make it really hard on the actors he's working with. Yeah. He will do take after take after take. He is a ridiculous perfectionist. People are not generally happy on his set, although yeah. they do feel that they're working with a genius. Yeah. And and he will do takes of an actor and work them into the ground. Yeah. And, until they reemerge. I mean, that's sort of his idea sometimes. Mm-hmm. We think, because Kubrick is not a guy who talks a lot. No, uh, Shelley Duvall uh, in numerous interviews has talked about how difficult it was being on the set because of the number of takes and because of the lack of communication with yeah. Kubrick and how she felt that Kubrick and Nicholson had their own kind of thing and she was feeling left out, well, which was kind of the point, I guess. Yeah, but yeah. I'm always I'm always hesitant with directors that want to fuck with actors. Like, I really have a thing about that because, I, because I'm, a, I'm an intelligent actor. I'm like, just speak to me. What do you need? I'll get it to you. If you're going to manipulate the situation to manipulate me emotionally to get something you want... I don't, I'm not comfortable with that. When I see other actors go through that, it, it drives me insane. Well, and it sounds like my understanding is that he did want to mess with yeah. Duvall. Yeah. Is that he wanted her to feel vulnerable and insecure right. and nervous and messed up because that was what he was going to get out of the character. Yeah. And Shelley Duvall, we're going to get to her too. Yeah. Her performance is stellar. It's, it's wild. Yeah, but these directors don't care about what that damage does to a person right. afterwards. And that's where my anger lies. Well, this is why I say, this is what I don't teach my students. Yes, good point. This is why I wouldn't, I would like, no, this is not what you're supposed to do. First of all, I tell my students, you're probably not a genius. You know? <laughs> that's good to accept that now. You know, like, maybe, and if you are, great, and that's awesome. <laughs> but you're probably not. Yeah. And so you don't get the cred that Stanley Kubrick gets of letting someone let him do 108 takes right. of something. But secondly, it's mean. Yeah. You know, right. it's not nice. And exactly. and I don't want to hurt people. Yeah. And I don't want to waste money and I don't want to waste time. And the thing is, so let's talk about the number of takes because sure. so ideally we want to get it in three takes. Yes. That's a good goal. You don't usually get it in one. If you do get it in one, I would probably as as a as a directing instructor say, let's do another one just for safety. Yeah. Because something might have happened on that take that you didn't notice. So mm-hmm. usually you're going to end up doing a two or three. And if you have a dolly shot or in this movie, there's t- it's all steady cam. Mm-hmm. 
you're gonna have to practice a few times. Yeah. So you're not gonna get a good one until five or six. Right. And so maybe maybe end up to seven. Uh, and Spielberg said an interesting thing. He said he said that either either the first or second take were the good one or the seventh. <laughs> and what and the, and I like this reasoning a lot. This makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Which is the first or second take that the actors do it. It's fresh. Yeah. And they, they're hearing that other actor say it for the first time. They're doing the movements for the first time. And so when they're reacting, and a lot of we always say that acting is reacting yeah. most of the time. They're really reacting because mm-hmm. it's all new. And if you don't get it in the first or second take, because maybe technically you didn't know where that coffee cup was you had to pick up and you turned and you didn't quite hit your light or your mark exactly right, or the camera was out of focus, something like that, that what's going to happen is it's going to get a little stale on the third and the fourth take, and it'll get kind of worse. Fourth take, fifth take, sixth take might be kind of bad because now we're all kind of bored with it. But by the sixth take, now all the technical stuff has gone away and you rediscover the scene just like you do in rehearsal. You rehearse a scene for a while and you get gets yucky and crappy and lifeless. Mm -hmm. And then when everyone's really smooth and really got their moves, you make new discoveries and that's the seventh, eighth take. Yeah. Kubrick does 40 takes. (laughs) Okay. And, and sometimes he does a hundred takes. It's insane to me. Yeah. And there are a lot of reasons why he does another take. Yeah. One is, is that visually he wants that camera not really, really, really close to exactly the right spot. Right. He wants it in exactly the right spot. Right. And when you're talking uh, a steady cam shot where someone's running down a hallway for two minutes to stop and land with someone's nose directly in the center crosshairs yeah. and no shake on the camera, that's really hard. Yeah. So he wants that. The other thing that people have said is when you look at what happened to Jack Nicholson, is he starts out, he gave sort of a regular performance. Yeah. And then he gave another flavor of it and another flavor of it. And then he would give more and more and more. And then he would become exhausted. And then he would give less and less and less and less. And then he would go, what the fuck do you want from me? And he would go crazier and crazier. And then he's just trying to do anything. And he would do these insane, insane takes. And that's what Kubrick wanted to get him to. (laughs) But do you ever think that that's just Kubrick? Like, it does not mean that the first or second take wouldn't have still had the same effect, wouldn't have still been just as powerful. It's just to the 40th take for Kubrick was the one that Kubrick liked, but 95% of the audience would have been just fine with that first or second take. Yeah, absolutely. This, this is, is why I wouldn't tell my students yes, to direct is, like Kubrick. <laughs> Chaplin did the same thing. Charlie Chaplin would do the same thing, drove his actors crazy. And that was before unions and before any kind of respect for actors existed. They would do 100 to 125 takes. Uh, there was all kinds of stories about him doing multiple and multiple takes you well, know, to and, get there. And, and, and of course, while I'll tell my students to not direct like Kubrick, yeah, I'm not Kubrick. Right, true. You know what I mean? Like, and the man is a master of filmmaking. Yeah. yeah. And so who am I to say that having the center of somebody's eyes one millimeter off center punch is not what's making this movie work? It's a fair point. I don't know. Yeah, it's a fair point. What do you think? So do you want to talk about Shelly now? You want to move on to something else? No, let's talk about Shelly. Because I want to talk about her because we're talking about the takes. She's so good in this movie. Oh, yeah. And, and Shelley is one of the most unusual actresses, looking actresses you'll yeah. ever see. But it's, it's sometimes the combination of the face, the voice, the body works. And in her, it works, you know. There's a, there's a strength to it in the back of her that you can hear when she does the, she does any role, and especially in this. When she tries to explain to this child doctor, the, the pediatrician, how Jack uh, hurt Danny's arm, She's doing that it. That scene a, is great, isn't it? And, yeah. and that's done so well by her because that is a ma, that is a wife who has 
saddled herself to a man that she thought was something else and he's become something else and when he's hurt their child it's becoming clear to her the mistake she's made but she can't lose face in front of this pediatrician because she is not ready to accept and open up the mistake she's made by choosing this man to be her husband and the father of her child well and she's still trying to not believe it yes she's still she's still internally going no, 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 this is, it's okay. Yeah. It really is. She's trying to excuse it. Yeah. And if you look at, you know, stories or read stories right. about women in these kinds of relationships, yeah. that's what you have to do. Yeah. They're, they give it away a little bit when her hand shakes as she starts lighting her cigarette, which I noticed this time, this time you see her hand just shake real quick. It's a real quick shot, but you see her hand shake a little bit and it's her holding it in because she knows she doesn't want to face it. Right? She doesn't want to accept it yet. And when she holds Danny later, after she thinks Jack has choked her, choked Danny, that's where you see that she's accepted that right. he is terribly violent person the in and the absolute worst well, person insane. she could have chosen and insane right yeah. but also what i like about her is that I, in my mind, I see women like this all the time who have been brought up in these overbearing households with very strong father figures. And so they just see that as love. So they find another man who is exactly the same. And then they get into a relationship, they get into a marriage, and then they realize years later when they finally come into their own as a woman that, Jesus, this is not love. This is not the right thing. The, the fortunate ones get out of that kind of situation. you know. And you see in that moment when she grabs Danny later in the film that she, she realizes the situation that she's in, which is why I think she swings that bat to his hand and knocks him down the stairs with the bat because she's realized no more. Well, um, but even in that scene, she is in the process yes, of yes. realizing it. Absolutely. The first time she swings that bat, it is there's nothing in there. No. That Jack has to do so much yeah. to get her to the point where she hits him. Right. And even then, she feels terrible about right, it. Right, she does, because she doesn't finish the job. No. She puts him in the, the, sto- in the food pantry, like you said. <clears throat> well, how do you? I mean, like, this is, you know... He just bashes skull in. Well, I understand the physics. <laughs> but emotionally, to get to the point where, like, you accept the fact that the only choice I have here... Yeah, and it's great, because she's walking backwards. She's saying, I'm confused. I just don't want to go back to my room. That's her wanting to shut away what's happening but jack you're right jack does all the work in that scene because in a, not not in the work in terms of acting but work in terms of making her accept the fact that he is insane because he says wendy stay away darling light of my life i'm not gonna hurt you you didn't let me finish my sentence i said i'm not gonna hurt you i'm just gonna bash your brains i'm gonna bash him right the fuck in <laughs> That's, yeah. that's when she realized, okay, this is it. Well, in a way, you know, interpreting this movie, we interpret this movie as about insanity. We interpret this right. movie about addiction and alcoholism. We could have termed this movie about codependent behavior yes. and a woman in a, in a, a battered woman in a bad relationship. Yes. And what it takes to finally accept your own strength and your own, you know, rights to right. have your own life and right. to protect your child. Uh, so let's talk about Danny Lloyd. Sure. What he does... As and what he has to do is a lot in this film. Yeah, and I, I worry about that kid in the making of this movie <laughs> doing forty takes of screaming mm-hmm. for Stanley Kubrick. I really do. Well, I don't know if he's screaming because you don't hear his scream to the last scream. Right. So maybe he's just opening his mouth really loud. But he is so believable when yeah. he's scared out of his mind, yeah. when he doesn't understand what's happening, when he's having those conversations with. Uh, was it Steve or Timmy? Tony, the Tony, little, the little yeah, voice. What's his interesting mouth. name? Tony. Yeah, you have to give him that voice. Yeah, the voice in his mouth that hides in his stomach. That he's able to convey a reality, and that just even the opening scene where he's eating that sandwich yeah. and talking to his mom. There's just a power in that that's unsettling. 
And it's, the kid is fantastic in the film. Well, and they, they, they auditioned thousands of kids. As I'm you sure do, they did. Because it's really hard to find. Yeah. And the, the doing the finger thing, that's something Danny did in the audition. Oh, wow. Yeah, he invented that. It's not in the book. And that's one of the reasons they cast him, because he there did this go. weird thing that they really liked. And one of the interesting things about the film, normally when you shoot a film, you shoot out of sequence. So you shoot whatever is convenient to shoot in whatever order. Because, right. again, to use the Clint Eastwood rules, we're yeah. trying to be efficient. Yeah. Kubrick doesn't care about being efficient. Mm -hmm. So they essentially shot it uh, in sequence. Holy shit, so the start, whole movie in sequence? Yeah. Oh, my word. Well, it's mostly on set, so it's not as hard right. when, you, when you shoot you on sets. And one of the advantages is, because it ended up taking close to a year to shoot the movie, Danny grows. Oh, right. You look at him at the end of the movie. You look at him at the beginning of the movie. He is That's a true. lot older. That's a good point. Um, and if you hadn't shot in sequence, it would have been really hard. Yeah. Because this kid would be getting bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller. Right, right. And, and then we get to Scatman Crothers. I love <laughs> Scatman Crothers. He's this really unique yeah. guy. I remember growing up with him on Chico and the Man. Yeah. All right. these shows. And he was a buddy of Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson oh, brought him in. Oh, how funny. Okay. And he's the one who Kubrick maybe push the hardest oh the scene in uh with danny and scatman yeah when they have an ice cream uh 138 takes what yeah does your mom and dad know about tony yes do they know he tells you things no tony told me never to tell him has tony ever told you anything about this place about the overlook hotel i don't know Wow. Seven minute scene. It is a long scene. They're shooting it for, I think, you know, over a week. Yeah. Shooting three shots. Wow. Yeah. And, Scat and they're just staring at each other. Yeah, they're not doing it. It's not complicated camera. Movies. No, it really isn't. And Scatman apparently kind of lot, like broke down. Like said, you know, Stanley, what do you want from me? You know, like like this yeah. old man who's lived a life. Yeah. Scatman was a was a, a, a band leader and a musician yeah. and all had this whole life. And now he's, you know, an older gentleman and these, this director just breaks him down. Apparently, Danny had no problem. He just kept doing it. But Scatman couldn't handle it. The other thing I love about Scatman Crothers, which we just have to give one moment for, are the paintings in his room. Oh, yeah. Such a great just, room. We're just going to have to take a moment to think about Kubrick's choice to put those particular paintings on the wall. If you haven't seen the film, just do a Google search. You'll see what we're talking about. There's something. Um... <laughs> So yeah. one of the important things to talk about in this film is yeah. the Steadicam. Okay. We're, we're pretty soon after the invention of the Steadicam. It's invented in the mid-70s. It had been on a few films. Yeah. Mostly used for running. Um, mm. Because running is a thing that's really hard to do with a dolly. Right. A Steadicam, for people who don't know, it used to be that your choices were that your camera was on tripod, which yeah. means it's not moving. It's on a dolly, which means you lay down tracks, which takes a lot of time. And then the tracks might always be in your shot. So it affects how you shoot the scene. Right. And you can only do certain kinds of moves because you're on, imagine on railroad tracks, they can curve, but they can't take a sharp left turn, yeah. go upstairs, go downstairs. You know, they can't run up a, a mountainside. They can't do those things. Right. Or, or you could do handheld, but because of the way we move, handheld shots are very bouncy. Yeah. And so you're very aware that you're in a handheld shot. Mm -hmm. So this guy, Garrett Brown, um, invents a system, and he's a brilliant inventor, still around today, still inventing things, wow. where basically it separates the camera from the person. So the person wears a big vest, and the camera yes. is on a gimbal, and it's this, basically the same technology they used 
if you wanted to have an oil lamp on an old sailing ship mm -hmm. and you wanted it to stay up and down so the oil didn't spill, it would slide back and forth on this thing called a gimbal. Okay. And that's what they build for the Steadicam. And it allows a person to move essentially separate from the camera. Right. So the camera moves smooth. So Kubrick sees this thing and goes, this is what I've wanted my whole life. <laughs> and brings Garrett Brown, the inventor of the Steadicam, and he shoots about two thirds of the film. Wow. Uh, and it's all of these remarkable, remarkable shots. Yeah. And what was interesting for Garrett Brown, because everyone had only used him to run, mm -hmm. but Kubrick didn't want that. I mean, either, there's like one or two running shots, right. but mostly it's moving very slow. And there's this slow, smooth move throughout much of the movie. Yeah. Um, this very much in the Kubrick style. Yeah. Well, it's, it's certainly noticeable, right? And, oh, yeah. And after now having all this time of watching films, you go back and see this and you see those scenes, those moments that are using the Steadicam and they do, they, they're used so effectively, so perfectly well done uh, that, and it furthers what you're trying to accomplish with the film, which is that feeling of terror and dread that's constantly in your face, right around the corner, or maybe even walking right next to you that you don't even know about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and part of it is the use also of wide-angle lenses. Yes. They were always in these wide lenses. So you see these big expanses mm -hmm. and a huge amount of detail. And as we talked about on the show before, with a wide-angle lens, you have tremendous depth of field. So right. everything is really in focus. And so you have these moving steady cam shots that are smoothly moving through these maze-like hallways. Yeah. And you have these wide-angle lenses with tremendous detail. Right. And combined with this droning, dissonant sound yeah. music, there's a tremendous feeling of dread throughout. Yeah, I mean, when Danny's going on the big wheel, I'm sure that's this guy, this guy in a Steadicam following him as he goes, because there's, no, there's no dolly tracks. Right. So it's obviously a guy, guy in a Steadicam following Danny as he goes around the corner. through Just the sound of it on the carpet, and I, even the sound of it going to the wood and then back on the carpet, all of it is, for me, it brings back memories because I grew up with big wheels. Sure, and I having big, big wheels. Right, I'm sure, you know, those kinds of things. You, you, you recognize those sounds, and they take these innocent child memory sounds and turn them into something completely horrific, you know, when he runs into the twins and the, the blood from the elevators and then seeing the images of the twins hacked to death by an axe. Oh, it's terrifying. Ugh. Let me go back to that shot. So sure. first of all, to do that steady cam shot, how they did it was they took the steady cam, which would normally be the camera to be about chest high. Yeah. And they took the steady cam rig and they switched it to upside down and mounted the camera upside down. Oh, wow. To film so that it, and, and it's essentially moving about three inches off the ground yeah. for the steady cam shot. And then the thing about the sound, which is absolutely right, that sound is amazing. That was a discovery. They were rolling sound. The sound is right down near the big wheel. Yeah. And when they get into the dailies, dailies is where you watch what you shot the day before. There's that sound. Yeah. And Kubrick didn't expect it. None of them expected it. And they're like, that sound is amazing. It is great. It, and that's just live production sound off. Yeah, wow. Yeah, really amazing. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about one more technical thing sure. before we get to the twins and the okay. blood and all that stuff that yeah. just, those twins, man. Uh, but hold off on them. Yes. Is uh, is I want to this, this is again I'm going to try to explain something that's very visual, but it's really important for watching Kubrick films, which is that Kubrick loves one point perspective. Okay. Okay. And what one point perspective is? It's something that comes from drawing, it comes from architecture. Is it's a way of showing depth. One of the things we talk about in film are we are we shooting in deep space or in flat space? So for flat space, you imagine five guys standing in front of a wall, the camera directly in front of them. Picture the usual suspect's yeah. poster right? That is flat space. All of the guys, they're the same height, they're the same distance from the camera, behind them is a wall, flat space. If you have those guys arranged 
one really close to camera, so his head is really big, yeah. one a little further away, so he's medium sized, one really far away, and they're next to um, uh, a wall that's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. We're in deep space now. Right. One of the ways of, of, of showing deep space is size change. There are other ways of showing deep space. But one of the most important ways is using a one-point perspective. And what a one-point perspective is, is if you imagine that you're standing on train tracks and you're looking out into the distance, you will see those train tracks slowly move towards each other at an angle until somewhere way off in the distance, they join. Yeah. That is the one point. Okay. okay. So Kubrick loves one point perspectives. Mm -hmm. You'll see them in Paths of Glory, in mm -hmm. Full Metal Jacket. You see them in 2001 is angles that are going towards each other. And they yeah. might not, we might not actually see where they meet. Right. But if you look from the interview shot, from moving down the hallways with those steady cam shots, over and over and over again, they're one-point perspectives. Yeah. And if you look at, if you go on YouTube and you shoot search Kubrick perspective, you will see multiple videos that back to back to back to back are showing you how he's using one-point perspective. Wow. And he uses it over and over and over again. And it's one of those things that gives you that sense of dread. Yeah. It gives you that sense of we exist within an order, mm -hmm. within a maze. Mm -hmm. Everything is going towards a certain point. And Kubrick also likes to center punch his images. So what this means is, I think we talked about in other podcasts, mm -hmm. the classic way of filming something would be that I have someone on the left side of the frame and they're looking towards the right and someone on the right side of the frame looking towards left. Mm -hmm. Kubrick wanted all his people when they're talking to each other, they're directly in the center of the frame and they're looking just barely off to the side of the camera. Right. And, and to the point where he and Garrett Brown would have arguments on take 38 because those crosshairs weren't right on someone's nose. Right. If they were just a tiny bit to the left or right, he wasn't happy. So everybody is always in the center, direct center of frame. And that is definitely within Kubrick's style and nobody else does it that way. That's wow. why That's why Kubrick films look like Kubrick films because yeah. he loves that. Yeah. Wow. And, and this is also goes to the meticulousness of how he makes films. Yeah. I mean, Kubrick would build, before they built these sets, they built models of all the sets. Right. And he's moving little cameras through the models and he's putting little lights in all the models and he's doing the mathematics of how to expand from this one quarter inch model or whatever it is yeah. to the big set and what will that mean for every single light and wherever's everything. That's why it takes five years to shoot a movie, <laughs> you know, because he's planning everything out to the most meticulous detail. Can't, you can't disrespect that. No. <laughs> you want, if you want to do it right, do it right all the way to the end. You know? I can think it's crazy. Sure. But sure. I cannot disrespect it. No, no. So let's talk about those twins. Yeah. It might be the scariest image I know of in a movie. Wow. I, I okay. mean, I, but I, I should say, I'm not a horror movie guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, but just, he comes around that corner, and those twins are sitting there. They're just, so, and the music hits. It's yes. like an amazing film moment. And what they say. Come and play with us, Daddy. Which Jack later repeats, yes. and it is so disturbing. Yes, which you know that 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 spirit is starting to consume everything around uh, it, and you see it happening there. And yeah, the images you have. One of the best things of the, of the film that really brings you into the horror of the film is Danny's face to everything. Oh, that, yeah. the, the, that actor is so good at the eyes slowly opening, the mouth wide, the hair, the big tuft of hair on his head, like doing whatever it's doing, shooting his shoulders back. As looking if, through his fingers. Yeah, looking through his fingers, yeah. all that. Those things that, that build up the dread, but the, the shots that Stanley has in that moment, you know, you see the shots of those poor girls 
uh, hacked to pieces with yeah. blood on the walls and you see the open wounds in their bodies you know it's and Stanley gives it to you in flashes because you don't he doesn't need to sit it on the screen for 30 seconds it's just flashes enough to unsettle you enough to put it in your brain almost like a, a subtle what do they call those things those subtle things a that subliminal they, message a subliminal yeah. message to put it in your brain to where you're the, where you're like I, this is unsettling as hell and it also lets you into Danny's brain because that's as much as probably a child of that age can conceive of seeing it only in flashes you cannot see the whole thing and have a uh, have a long drawn out look at something like that well and, and this is something we've talked about we we will talk about this yeah. when jaws when we get to that film yeah. but the more you see a thing the less scary it gets yes exactly if i get to look at it for a long time i i, I get immune to it when it flashes for a second yeah and i have the dread that's when it's going to stick with you, <laughs> exactly, you know. Yeah. Um, and let's talk about that blood coming through that elevator. Yeah, that shot is. Uh, yeah, it's really unsettling. Well, and it's one you. It's sort of endlessly fascinating. Yeah, you can't really stop looking at it. Well, the doors don't even open all the way for all that yeah. blood to come out. It just comes out because it's unstoppable. The way it comes down, and Kubrick does such a great job of slow motion in this film on a number of yeah. occasions. The way it comes down, the way it flows, the way it hits the walls, moving the chairs, and then consumes the camera. You know what I'm saying? So that your your which is your perspective in the film as an audience member, you are absolutely consumed by the. You're washed over by the blood, and it's yeah. powerful. Man. And, and and it's and it's kind of an abstract image, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Not abstract. It's a iconic image. Mm -hmm. It's not a realistic image. Right. It's not that there was ever a moment in this hotel where that much blood came through. Right. It's a symbolic thing, and um and it is haunting yeah. in the way that it's shown to you. Right. Um. Let's talk about Jack at the bar. Okay. I love that scene. Yeah. And and this goes with into, Lloyd with Lloyd. Yeah. And it's so beautiful how he comes into this empty room. And by the way. This is a huge set they're on. Mm -hmm. um, that is the same soundstage they used to film The Well of Souls from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a okay. really, really big space. They And because they built everything all at the same time, they were practice lighting in, that's the gold room, in mm -hmm. the gold room while they're shooting things in the Colorado Lounge. Oh. And so when they're setting up things in the Colorado Lounge, Kubrick would go back right. to the gold room and tweak lights. And they would tweak lights and they would do test shoots and tweak lights wow. and look at them in dailies and then tweak them again. So they were tweaking lights for weeks in that room. <laughs> and when you look at that room with the light coming up through the bar mm -hmm. and all the lit panels, it's amazing looking. Yeah. Agreed. And the moment at which Jack is first upset because he can't get a drink right. and then goes through this thing and then starts talking to Lloyd and then you cut to Lloyd and there he is. Mm -hmm. It's kind of an amazing filmic moment. Yeah. Hi, Lloyd. A little slow tonight, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is, Mr. Torrance. Because that's your that's your first real steps that he's taking towards wanting this spirit to possess him, yeah. wanting this spirit to be part of him. He wants Lloyd to be there. Lloyd is there. In that moment, he can be like, no, this is nuts. I'm getting out of here. This is crazy. I'm running. But he doesn't. He willingly enjoys that Lloyd's willingly has a couple of drinks with Lloyd, willingly bitches about Wendy, uh, willingly has all these situations and conversations with Lloyd, taking him into his confidence, therefore accepting the friendship of it, you know, and talks about Lloyd, talks to Lloyd as if Lloyd has been there the whole time, as if he's been there the whole time as well. Remember, he says, you're the best bartender from Timbuktu right. to Portland, Maine, Portland, Oregon, even. That's that kind of thing of like, why would you say that? 
Oh, because you're starting to embrace the spirit of the old caretakers. Like you, you're embracing the fact that you've been here for a long time, which is, of course, bleeds into that last shot of him in the black and white picture, smiling, and which is so insane. And so it just, it just lets you know, like he's being possessed by whatever well, well, spirit this is, is there. I think even more in in the book, it's very clear. What's yes, happening because there really are ghosts and spirits. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the movie, it's like, is this a crazy guy just having a conversation with himself? Right. And, and kind of imagining all these things yeah. and to what degree are these things happening right and 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 there's also in the way that lloyd is filmed he's kind of the devil yeah and the drink which we know this guy's an alcoholic who's right. been sober that drink is very much treated as the selling of the soul yeah you know and 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 continues to be throughout the film yeah and that actor who plays lloyd is so great from blade runner as well as the head of the trial corporation oh that's him yeah that's him of course that's him yeah with the glasses and everything yeah, yeah. and if you recognize the former caretaker in the bathroom that's the guy from clockwork orange who right. is the dad of malcolm mcdowell but i that actor that he that it plays that part is so good at playing lloyd there is you're right he has that you have that visual of the devil because he's so like his skin is so tight on his face the eyes are so big the hair is perfectly quaffed he's lit from underneath so yes those shadows exactly yeah. all of that just really and the way he delivers the the fact that he stares at jack for just a moment before he speaks, lets you know that he has the power in the situation. Yeah. It's so well done. So no, well it's done. beautifully yeah. done and creepy and very creepy. Yes, yeah. exactly. And ironically, in the room that she loves the most, that Wendy loves the most, which is with the gold and pink, her two two favorite colors. You know, so that's and and the fact that he's a recovering alcoholic for five months, hasn't touched a drop since he hurt Danny's arm. He willingly drinks that to become the alcoholic, to become this. This is him rejecting what he should do as a, as a man in society and embracing the insane side of himself because he no longer wants to be put in what he thinks is a cage. If he's actually drinking anything. Of course he isn't, but yeah. in his mind he is. Or if, if, the, if this is the thing about this movie, yeah. and this is the thing about Kubrick, Kubrick is not going to let you walk away knowing how to feel. Of course not. And so what you walk away with is you go, was this a mystical thing about the man who was always the caretaker, right. who was being pulled back into the spiritual place with the in, in you know Native American burial ground, right. where he has been over and over again? He's part of this thing, and that is what's happening here. Yeah. Or is this a movie about a alcoholic, psychopathic, right. schizophrenic? who goes fucking nuts and tries to kill his family. I would say that's possible, except that food pantry moment. The yeah, food pantry it. moment is the moment that makes the, that for me is the moment. There's two other things. The one thing I would say I don't like in this movie yeah. is, is one of the other things that makes it impossible, which is that Shelley Duvall's character sees crazy things in the hotel in the final sequence. Oh, yes. She sees the weird dog giving possibly yeah. oral sex to somebody, which is something that's in the book, by the way. Right. She sees, you know, skeletons covered with cobwebs. She sees the guy bleeding saying, great party. Yeah. And that stuff is the stuff I genuinely don't like in the movie. Wow. Yeah. and, and, and is, it, is it because it isn't earned? You don't see it earned? Or is it because... It just, it just... Uh, two reasons. One is Shelley Duvall just pushed her son out the window into yeah. the snow yeah well, to save him to save him and then jack goes away to go kill scatman crothers and she goes to find her son but yeah. for whatever reason she goes upstairs like you just oh, pushed your kid yeah. why, why aren't you going outside good point why would you believe he's in the hotel so that's right. one reason i don't like it and the other reason is it just becomes cheesy it's not scary to me there's right a, and well, Shelley Duvall does an amazing 
jowl shaking frightened face yeah by the eighth time i see it yeah it's having less and less effect yeah, it becomes comical yeah, yeah and yeah. so that last sequence it's kind of yeah a little haunted mansion-ish for me <laughs> you know um all the other right. stuff going on like jack limping through the maze oh, and all that so stuff great. amazing and and how deeper he goes into his voice I think is great when he's yelling for Danny because that's as close as he's going to get to being some kind of evil spirit. He's like, Danny, Danny, you know, he just, he's going deeper and deeper into it because he's becoming more and more of a primal animal. And you see that progress, the limping, the dragging of the, all of it, he's becoming almost caveman like. And then at the end he just dies with that devilish grin on his face or devilish look on his face rather. And, um, which he's so good at doing those. No, he's great. I mean, Kubrick likes, He's always liked um, shooting high angles on the head, yeah. looking down in this weird way for a really long time. Huh. He did it in Full Metal Jacket. He has right. shots. He has them in 2001 A Space Odyssey. You have mm-hmm. them. Um, he really likes it. And there's one in particular where he's on Jack for a really long time. Yeah. Jack's is really the best. Something about his eyebrows and his kind of tilted head down, <laughs> looking up stare. Right. That it's just re- And Kubrick loves that shot. Yeah. He really loves that shot. Um, one thing about the maze. So yeah. this was all shot in England. Um, oh, yes. Or, except for the exteriors. The exteriors are of a hotel called the Timberline Hotel, which is in... Uh, Oregon. Yeah. The interiors are modeled after the Iwani Hotel in Yosemite. Oh, right. And the Iwani Hotel in Yosemite is where I got married. Right. And I've been there many times and it is so bizarre because they look exactly like the Iwani. Wow. Except when you turn to the right here, you shouldn't be at the reception desk. Right. You turn to the right there, you would be going over to the bar because I know the Iwani really well. So I'm looking at like, it is really, I mean, and they painstakingly uh, copied the Iwani Hotel. Yeah. Um, So when they shot the maze, the Mm -hmm. maze, uh, obviously that huge giant maze doesn't really exist. Right. It's mostly made out of uh, plywood with branches taped to it it's not nearly as tall as you would think it is because because they use these wide lenses it's Uh, probably eight feet tall but it looks like 16 feet tall i mean it looks huge when they did the winter stuff it was 90 degrees oh they're using dairy salt spread everywhere that's what the white on the ground is really and styrofoam the dairy salt eat salt eats through everything so after a week of shooting it you need new shoes if it got on any camera equipment, it would rot the camera equipment. So everything had to be really protected from the salt. Wow. And in order to make the smoke, they're using smoke machines. Yeah. And the smoke machines back then aren't, aren't as nice now. I mean, you right. wouldn't want to be breathing those smoke machines all day. No. Today, they were much worse then. They had a, they were based on an oil that had smelled like kerosene. Oof. So they, it, they said it was brutal. Wow. 90 degree weather, dressed up in warm clothes, <laughs> running through right. salt and styrofoam yeah. and kerosene smelling smoke. Just brutal shooting wow. conditions. And it's so believable. It looks amazing. Right? Yeah. It looks amazing. Like when she's running and with the hands flailing and, and of running and the, the the white snow behind her just frames it all so perfectly. The desperation that she's feeling, the impossibility of the situation, you know, it's so powerful. Uh, until, until I found out it wasn't real winter, I never would have believed it. Yeah. Never would have right? believed that it's perfect. Yeah. Um, let's talk about... Not the documentary Room 237. Okay. But let's talk about going into Room 237 in the film. Yes. I think this is a remarkable sequence. Yes, agreed. The handheld POV shot of Jack. Yeah. Naked woman getting out of the tub. And then that beautiful edit to the older woman who's rotting. Oh, God. That moment is so disturbing in the film. It really is. And it, and again, it's all slow. Yeah. It's really, really slow. And I I was having soup when I that scene I don't came know where up, this is going. like a stupid, like an idiot. I has I was uh, having soup when that scene came up. 
I was having beef with country vegetables and I had to put my spoon down because it's so disgusting to watch that scene and try to eat meat. It's very disgusting. Um, the allure of the woman, the change. I don't know who that woman's supposed to be. I don't know who the old lady's supposed to be. I don't know if that's the caretaker's wife that he drowned in the tub, maybe. Well, in the book, it's explained who that is. Oh, it, yeah, it is yeah. the caretaker's wife? Okay. No, 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 oh. no. It's an old lady. There are a bunch of deaths okay, there in the book that okay. it goes into. Yeah, so you see her coming out of the water. Once again, it's flashes, right? Because you don't need that much. But that shot her from behind with her decaying butt cheek and whatever and all that. And the decaying uh, body. Uh, parts and that of her horrible body. cackle. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it is rough. And his reaction to it, too, is like, oh, you know, that's the moment where he could be like, oh, F this. This is all nuts. I don't want to be a part of being nuts. I got to get out of this. But no, it still isn't enough to change it. When he goes into that, later goes into back to their room, he lies to Wendy that there's nothing in that room. Yep. He lies to and then he gets mad at Wendy when Wendy wants to get them out of there because it's a bad environment. He gets upset at her, he turns it around on her, and then storms out. Well, this is the thing about his character, is that we don't ever get a chance to be sympathetic with no, this guy. No, not he even for a so, moment. He, he is not particularly nice through the first act of the film. Nope. And then he is horrible to her. Yes, he is. I mean, even fairly early, yeah. when like you, you know, you're interfering with my work and don't come in yeah. here, and he's screaming at her, mm -hmm. and it's just... Oh, it's awful. And he's terrible to Danny's too. Like Danny too. Like when he, when Danny's coming in to get that fire engine and of course Jack is lost in that, the nuttiness of himself sitting on the bed, calls Danny over and he has Danny sitting. It's so, there's so much dread in oh, that moment, just awful. holding his child that way uh, and answering his questions. And Danny does such a great job acting, acting that part because he is this, he is maintaining the same level the whole time while he's asking the question. It's yeah. so fantastic. And Jack is having to play off of it with his growing irritation. Did your mother tell yeah. you that? You know, you see that. And, and I think this is why the movie is so much harder for me now. Yeah, that, sure. that scene, that scene in particular, because I'm so much more sensitive to a little right. boy and what they're, and my son is exactly Danny's age. Yeah. I was going to ask you if that's yeah. close. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's five years old. My yeah. kid's five. Yeah. So I'm so much more sensitive to that. This is a human, right? That this is a human with feelings and with thoughts and yeah. with sensitivities trying to figure this out. And I'm imagining this kid being pulled into the arms of this man, Yeah. you know, and yeah. being put in this position. It's just horrible. Yeah. I want to ask you about The Shining. Do you believe in this kind of thing? Do you think this thing is possible? Obviously, there's ESP, people who are psychics, that kind of jazz. Do you think this is something that's real? Like the whole thing with Scatman Crother says, there were points where we got to the point where my grandma and I would have whole conversations without opening our mouths. Do you think this is possible? The communication between mental energies without speaking. I did not expect to be answering this question. <laughs> um, so I don't have an answer that I've thought out. I have... a. Um, here, I definitely believe. What's your gut reaction? Yeah. Well, I definitely believe there are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in my philosophy. Hello, um, my Shakespeare I, reference. Uh, sure, I, de I definitely believe that. Yeah, um, I am very wary of. Um, I'm trying to think of how best to put it. Okay. This is actually something I've thought a lot about. Mm -hmm. in, in martial arts, as you know, I do Aikido. Right. The middle word of Aikido is ki. Ki re refers to mystical energy. Ah. And so, and what we talk about a lot in Aikido is we're moving ki, we're sensing ki, mm -hmm. we're flowing with ki, we're extending ki, we're doing all these things. And what I see is that people, the, people, if you do martial arts, you experience a whole bunch of phenomena. Yeah. I've blocked stuff that I never saw. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sure. I've thrown stuff and felt like I didn't do it. Thrown mm -hmm. someone without feeling like I did anything. I've thrown someone without touching them. Right. And people experience these things and they go, ah, that's key. Right. And they, they, they use this word to lump all these phenomena together. 
And I don't think that's what's happening. I what, what I think is, I think if Merlin were around, mm. he would not think that what he did was magic because mm-hmm. he would think what he did makes perfect sense. Right. So I do think there are certainly things that happen that we can't explain. Right. I also think that we as humans are love to create patterns. Yes. This happened, this happened, and therefore that means this. Yeah. And it's the therefore that I usually have a problem with mm-hmm. because I'm like, well, you don't really know that that happened. Right. For instance, people go like, oh, I dreamt that my mother was dying and then I woke up and she was dead. Wow. You know, like, and you've heard this story a lot. Right. But we're not very good about checking all the times we dream things that don't end up happening. Yeah, right, exactly. You know, and so it's like, yeah, that happened and that's amazing. Right. But to what degrees can we go that's mystical? And to what, yeah. and I don't know the answer. Okay. Um, so that's my answer. What's your answer? Uh, I do believe in, in a lot of the extrasensory perception stuff. I believe that that, is, that white noise that people talk about with spirits trying to communicate through electrical paths. I do believe that. We are, we are uh, you know, as human beings, we're, we're a bunch of synapses putting together. We're, we're some kind of electric energy. You know, in the Matrix, they use us to use our body's electricity to power their world. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's certainly possible. It's a terrible, us. terrible plan. I'm just saying, it's, a very, it's certainly possible to have this thing exist in the world. And I've, I've seen things or read stories of people who have a certain amount of understanding and intuition. Do you know what I'm saying? If, you're, can be, if you can be an empath, then the next step is that ability to sense or predict or feel that you know what's going on with someone else. So it's just interesting, that kind of stuff. So I enjoy it. I then exist. I also believe in aliens. I also believe in all this kind of shit because why wouldn't there be? So to me, it just seems logical. Other people can put it down. And you're more than welcome to your opinion. My belief is I believe all that mystical stuff because anything is possible because we as human beings only use 10% of our brain. So we don't know how much of Not our true. Brain, you know, well, I, are you going to argue that too? That, that 10% of the brain thing is yeah. such a... Uh, that's a thing that's been said forever. Of course. And nobody has, there are no statistics that say this is true. What? It's not true at all. No. It, yeah. Why well, would it ever become true if it, it'd be something to be said? Because if it people, true. Say, people have been saying this thing forever. How will you measure how much of your brain do you use? What, you, what, what, when did you, how old were you when you first heard this 10% of your brain thing? Uh, probably my 20s. Okay. When everything I read is in my what, 20s. What te- uh, what I've heard it's probably since I was 10 or 12 years old. Oh, it's in okay. the comic books. It's been around forever. Right. What techniques do you think they had in the 70s, 80s, yeah. 60s, 50s to measure how much of one's brain was being used at any one given time? Well, if, if certain sections of your brain are not firing away at all. How do they know point? what's firing? Wouldn't they see synapses or something clicking or something like that? So only now... And brain activity. Only now when we have an fMRI machine yeah. are we capable of watching in real time what's okay. firing. It's not true. So you don't think it's 10% at all? No, it's not that I don't think it is. I'm telling you it's not true. <laughs> you think, we, no, use, no, you think here, we use all our brain? Oh, of course we do. Oh, interesting. But not all the time. And here, so, oh. so, so here's the thing. Uh, we've digressed. We have we're totally devolving. But, but I will say this is um, who knows if this will make the pod. Yeah, yes, this will be a supplemental episode. Sure. Steve and John talk about mystical shit. Yeah, um, it's a whole new podcast. That's You're a, gonna like it, it a lot. It should be on Funny or Die. Yeah, um, is uh, there's the prefrontal cortex. Yeah, sure. That's a part of your brain which is the the voice that you hear when you're talking to yourself, the logical part that's thinking through. That's the prefrontal cortex. Okay. That is a relatively small physical part of your brain. Okay. And it's a part of the brain that doesn't exist in what we call lower animals. So right. humans have really evolved, evolved this thing. Right. And other animals don't have it so much. But there's a huge visual cortex. It's running all the time. Every time your eyes are open. Gotcha. So, so, so saying we're not using this, it's like, no, I'm using my amygdala 
every time I have emotions. Right. It's not my prefrontal cortex. So you're using all these things all the time. Right. The whole 10% thing is like just some weird thing that someone said and everyone just started repeating it. It's, and there's no facts to back this up at all. I'm going to do more research on this. Okay, you all send right. it back to me. I will. I will send you, I'll send you stuff too. All right. all right, let's get back to the movie. So let me ask you this. All right. Uh, what is the most disturbing moment in this movie for you? Well, that's a great question, Steve. Uh, it's probably the old lady. It's, yeah, that's a good one. That's, that's a deep-seated fear of most men. Yeah, I'm telling you right now. That's very. It's very visceral. Yes. You know, right? Because it's symbolic of, hey, I thought I was kissing this, but I'm actually kissing this, which could be symbolic of like, oh, I thought I was kissing this woman, and then I find out later on, oh, she's this kind of woman, that kind of thing, you know, or vice versa. I'm kiss- sure. I thought I was kissing this kind of man, and later on, he's that kind of man. Uh, but I think the shot of the uh, the girls uh, caught up in the in the hallway is the most disturbing for me because they're defenseless little girls, and that is a, a powerful Horrible. thing Horrible. for me. Yeah. For what me, strangely enough, yeah. it is. All work and no play no. make Jack a dull boy. Because <laughs> you're a writer, dude. I get, and there's something about it. That's your worst it. fear of your life. There's something about it's, it's, it's not violent. No, it's not gross. No, but there's something about particularly she turns the pages. Yeah, and you see that they're formatted differently. Oh yeah, that's the thing that struck me too. And there, and that there's like this one is indented and yeah. this one has weird lines in that. That looks like a poem. And I I yeah. can't get my head around what was Jack thinking that he was doing? Right. Did Jack know that he was writing all work and no play? Did he actually think he was writing a whole novel? Right. And didn't know what his fingers were doing? And just the, I don't know, my brain really spins mm-hmm. on the weeks of typing. That I don't know why, but just that, I don't know, it really, it's weird. I understand that. But that's his, that's his of course, that's his uh, slipping into the madness, right? Is to him, he's just like him drinking the fake Jack Daniels to him. He's actually typing. I think so. This amazing I novel that it's going, which is novel. why he's so upset at Wendy that like, you're, I'm just so close to, you know, to finishing this thing. It'd be just like you to want to drag me away just when I'm going to be successful and blah, blah, blah. But in, but when she sees what he's been writing, which is well, such a, awesome moment for a horror because and this is a mental horror this is a mental horror film right. you know it, it doesn't have to show you much but there's enough to get you crazy when she sees and you're right Steve what struck me watching this time is all the different ways that it's formatted where it looks like a poem looks like a haiku it looks like a, just like a military document like there's all kinds of different ways that it was done like there's one where it's in a triangle shape and you're like what the fuck and so when you're going through it you're just like yeah this is every writer's worst nightmare that what they're writing is the same bullshit over and over again they've just been lying to themselves that they're putting it in a different form Format and therefore it has value and that is so amazing yeah, you're right you're right and that that is why it's so disturbing right. to me because i'm a writer yes is that is that because i have carved out time to write and i have said no to things and i have made my wife wait yeah so i could write and the overarching misgiving that all of my time is just being put into all work and no play yes. make jack a dull boy that is the fear of course of i've wasted it's just been wasted Right. All of this has been wasted. <laughs> By the way, it's not just as a writer. Uh, anybody, I think any person in any career of their life that they've chosen to give their lives to and they've sacrificed for could end up realizing, my God, I've just been doing the same thing over and over again in a different format and I've accomplished yeah. nothing. And yeah. I thought I'd accomplished all this. Yeah. You know? So it's it, that's another form of mental horror as well or yeah. terror. Well, and that's that's this mo- that's yeah. how this movie gets into your head yeah. is you don't get to know, nope. you don't get to find out, and you're not left with a feeling of yay, we beat the bad guy. Right. You're left with a feeling of unsettled, yeah, difficult. What did I just go through? Yeah. Sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yes. We're gonna do it now. Okay. Room two thirty seven. 
<laughs> oh, I thought so, we were in final thoughts. All right, let's get into it. All right, so so here, here's... This is going to be the longest podcast we've ever done. Yes, so, go ahead. Ladies and gentlemen, so we're going to talk a little bit about a separate documentary called Room 237. For those of you who don't know, Room 237 is a documentary that explores various conspiracy theories about The Shining. Yes. And that there are people who have gone in depth analyzing frame by frame, yes. shot by shot, to discover hidden meanings within mm -hmm. the film The Shining. Uh, came out a few years ago. Yes. And uh, and John actually took me to see it. Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> Have you watched it recently? Because I course. watched it again. I've seen it like five times. Okay. I love this film. It's an addiction to me, this film. Uh, and the fact that it's on Netflix makes it so much easier to just pop it on. Because it captures the the dread of the movie even more so. This idea that he could have done it, and it's plausible to these people who are intelligent people. These are not stupid people. No, not at these all. These are people with degrees. These people run news bureaus and international politics. These are intelligent people, lawyers, who come up with this these theories about The Shining, that it was, one theory is that it was Kubrick's apology for fake for filming the fake moon landing of Apollo 11, right. which ref, is referenced in the film when you see Danny stand up in a way that he's never stood up in the film, or stood in the film, very proudly with his chest out to show you the Apollo 11 on his sweater right. in what looks like a Cape Canaveral formation of where the uh, spatial or the rockets take off from. Right. Very, the, the, carpet, very... the carpet looks very much like a top-down shot of, of the rocket launch. Absolutely. Pants. All of that is possible. There's another person who theorizes that it's about what they, the, an apology to the Native Americans for how white, white people treated them. And there is a number of references to Native American stuff in the film by no the actors. No. And there's images that are shot. Another woman thinks it's about the Minotaur, which is really interesting, the legacy of the Minotaur in Greek mythology and how that plays in through the film. So there's a number of theories that get posited throughout this yeah, documentary. another one that it's about the Holocaust. Yeah, it's about the Holocaust, yeah. right. And I think it's fascinating to me because I'm always enamored with the mind, the human mind and what it can connect to construct a theory. Because I love to debate. One of the greatest joys I feel when I watch that documentary is these are intelligent people trying to string together cogent points to create a coherent argument to defend the fact that they truly believe when they watch the film that this is happening. In fact, one, one, one point in the documentary, this person is saying they play the, they play the film backwards and frontwards at the same time. Right, and they, they superimpose the film on itself, yeah. one running backwards, one forwards. And they hit one moment in that film that's supposed to show what their theory is that the film is supposed to be about, which is fascinating to me, the time and effort it would take to create. And this is back when we had VHSs. This isn't back when you have like, or a projection, it's a projection rather. It isn't time when you have a, a Blu-ray which you can stop easily and go back and forth and analyze in 4K or whatever. This is, these people took time and effort to create these theories. It's fascinating. Okay. <clears throat> go ahead, Steve. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you buy them? I... I don't know if I buy them, but I love that they exist. And the moon landing one is the one that convinces me the most. The other stuff I can go back and forth on. The moon landing one, I absolutely think is possible. Absolutely possible. So I have a lot of feelings about this stuff. Yes, you do. And I will say first, <laughs> I actually like it. Do you really? Oh, I thought you didn't like it. No, I don't buy it. Oh, you don't buy it, but you like it. Well, this is the thing. It's really entertaining. Yes, it is. Now, now, now let's I want to make a clear. The, the Cinephiles is about examining great films. Right. I'm not putting Room 237 on the list. No. But if you're like movies, this is, and you have Netflix, yeah. it's, it is completely compelling and enjoyable. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of sweeps you up yeah. in, in all of these ideas. And you start going, yeah, maybe. Yeah, because yeah, you maybe. He, because they have these people actually telling you their theories and then showing you evidence for it using scenes from the film. Yep. So you're not hearing a, one narrator saying, and then 
Sheila from blah blah believes the blah. No, you're hearing the actual people because they've been recorded. They've been sure. You know, it's and their interview. It's their interview, yeah. and you never see them. You never see any of these people, and they how they connect like Eyes Wide Shut and other films to what Kubrick is trying to do with this film, which I think is fascinating. What they think Kubrick, yeah, is what they to think is film. Kubrick is doing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what's interesting? What's interesting about the documentary is the documentaries style and intention yeah. is to make this as convincing as possible. It's not yes. a documentary that checks any evidence. It doesn't go out and see, well, is this true about right. this thing or that right. thing? For instance, I'll give you an example because I did go out and check some evidence. Oh, um, So the, one of the key points, one of the basic ones, is that in the book, it's room 217. Right. In the movie, it's room 237. Right. Why did Kubrick change the number? And then they have a moment where text comes on screen and you hear the guy who has the theory about the Apollo landing yeah. say that the Timberline Hotel where they shot the exteriors asked Kubrick to change it from 217 because they had a room 217. They were afraid people would get scared out of it. But in fact, and this is text on screen in the film, that hotel has no room 217. <laughs> that room hotel does have a room 217. You're right, right. Yeah, and they have it on their website. And so it would have only taken you know a phone call yeah. to find out, do you in fact have a room 217? But the, the documentary puts this thing that is not true right. on the screen. And that is a key point to make this convincing. Right. Another key point is that why change it to 237? Well, because the moon is 237,000 miles away. The moon is not 237,000 <laughs> miles away. First of all, the moon is in an elliptical orbit. So it goes from about 229,000 yeah. to about 275,000, averages to 238,900 yeah, miles away. Close enough. If, yeah. it was, if he wanted to make it the moon number, why did he choose <laughs> one that's close? So there's so much in this film yeah. that you remember when we did um, Holy Grail? Yes. And in Holy Grail, there's the scene about the witch. Yes. And they have the wonderful logic of witches burn, what else burns? Right. Wood. Therefore, witches are made out of wood. Right. Wood floats. What else floats? A duck. Therefore, a witch must make, be way as much as a duck. Right. I'm not going to say the logic in this movie is that bad. <laughs> two, three, seven. Yeah, right. Rule but two, it's three, close. <laughs> there's a lot of really weak logic. You want another one? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, one of the ones of uh, why it's about the Holocaust. Yeah, is that there's a German typewriter. That's yes. what makes this guy think that it's about the ho must be about the Holocaust. Right. Do you remember what that guy does for a living? No. Holocaust researcher. <laughs> okay. So the guy's brain's already on the Holocaust. Right. That's what we call confirmation bias. Okay. Confirmation bias is I have a belief about how things work, yeah. and then I look for evidence that completes my belief. Right. Right. Do you know why they use that typewriter? Why? It's Cooper's typewriter. Oh. Yeah. So nobody asked the question. Right. Nobody, no, they, they just go, German typewriter must therefore be about the Holocaust. Right. And now, let's be really clear. There are a lot of things that have happened in Germany. Sure. Why does it have to be the Holocaust? Right. Why can't it be about the Gutenberg Bible? Sure. You know, this is about printing, and maybe it's about the Gutenberg Bible. They, the, that's the Bible that brought religion to the masses, and how does that relate to The Shining? <laughs> Just as easily proven. Yeah. If I could take a piece of evidence and prove <laughs> multiple different things with it, it's not a good piece of evidence. By the way, that typewriter is $630 on Amazon. Is it really? I looked that up. That you can look up. Yeah, I looked it up because I was like, ooh, this might be fun to like get an old typewriter in the house and see what that's typewriters like. Typewriters are cool. And uh, I was like, six hundred. yep, it ain't that cool, $637. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> you know? the, 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 the principles to me are... Um, 
uh, confirmation bias. Yeah. We got to use Occam's razor. Occam's razor oh, is yes. the simplest explanation is the best. Yes. Is it more likely that this chair disappeared because Kubrick is secretly telling you that this isn't a real horror movie, which is what one of the guys say? Yeah. Or is it more likely they made a continuity error? And the answer is it's more likely they made a continuity error. Right. Oh, Danny's sweater. You brought up Danny's sweater. Yeah. You see, they never ask why is he wearing that sweater? Why is he wearing a sweater? So Kubrick decided, according to the costume designer, right. Kubrick said, I want him to be wearing something homemade because if he's wearing something homemade right. that maybe the mom made or the aunt made when it gets damaged in room 237 yeah then that'll be more emotional okay so the costume designer who's british because this was shot in england yeah. says oh i have a friend who knits sweaters so they brought over a stack of eight sweaters he picked that one okay so he couldn't have had a plan to show the most important moment of showing that i faked the moon landing went because someone randomly happened to knit a sweater what are the odds you would have to commission that sweater if you really wanted it, if it was that important? Okay, that's a flimsy one, but I will accept it. To me, that's flimsy, a bit flimsy, because we don't know if he, didn't, if he did or didn't commission it. And the costume designer could say one thing or the other. I don't know. I don't know. That one I'm a little on the fence about. And here's the biggest reason why, I don't, why this doesn't work for me. Only one of those theories could possibly be true. True. The vast total of weird things that you see yeah. contradict each other. Right. Because if it is about Native Americans, well, then it's not about the Holocaust. Right. Can I tell you one more thing, but okay. I, I might not put it in the podcast? Okay. Okay. So, because it's a little off topic, but it relates to this kind of logic and mm -hmm. why I have a problem with it. So, in the Enlightenment... Oh, here yeah. we go. No, I'm going to tell you, I mean, this is just a full Steve story now, <laughs> wait, but it's wait. a good one. Um, I need to put, do I need to put my helmet on? Right, let's go ahead. So in the Enlightenment, we got Newton and Leipzig and Kepler and Copernicus and all these guys. Right. Is that a lot of people, there, there are a lot of what brought us into the age where we weren't just looking to the church yeah. for what the truth was. And what people don't know about those guys is most of those guys were really religious. Right. And that one of the basic ideas of the Enlightenment is that I believe in God yeah. God must be perfect. God created the universe. Therefore, the laws that govern the universe must be perfect. Yeah. That's the logic that leads them to all the discoveries of the Enlightenment. Yeah. Now, of course, what we do with those discoveries ended up kind of being the opposite. Right. But that's what they, they went to do. So Johannes Kepler, he's a uh, astronomer, mm -hmm. and he's trying to figure out the pattern at which the planets orbit the sun. Right. So he goes, God is perfect. Therefore, the laws that govern the planets orbiting must be perfect. Therefore, we must pick a perfect law while geometry is perfect. So there must be a geometric reason that it describes all these orbits. Right. Okay. And you can stay with me for a second. I'm, I'm cool. with you. So what he goes is, go, okay, we, had, we knew of eight planets at the time. Right. So the, an eight-sided object is an octagon. So if I were to draw an octagon, there should be a uh, circle that you could draw inside of the octagon yeah. where the circle landed on each of the flats of the octagon. Oh. Okay. And that circle should be the orbit of the eighth planet. Hmm. And then within that circle, there should be a perfect seven-sided geometric mm -hmm. artist. That's septagon. I remember what it's called. Yeah, septagon. Where the points of that thing will be inside the orbit, the circle, mm -hmm. and fit perfectly. And then if I draw a circle that touches the flats... That should be the orbit of the seventh planet. Right. And then I draw a hexagon inside that orbit yeah. and then draw a circle inside that hexagon. Right. And that should be the sixth planet and so on and so on. And he believed this, because that's a perfect system right. and God is perfect, that that should exactly describe the orbits of all the planets. And he spent 20 years wow. trying to make this work. 
And of course it didn't work because right. that's not how the orbits work. Right. Then he said, oh, you know what? I was wrong. The problem, it's not geometry, it's music. We have an eight tone musical system, each tone at a different frequency. Yeah. And so each of those orbits must be exactly the steps between the musical notes of the eight tones, which is bullshit anyway, because you could have a 12 tone system right. and all this stuff. But so, and you know how much time he spent on that? How much? 20 more years. Oh my gosh. Until who's funding this guy? Yes, go ahead. This is well, the, all the enlightenment is rich guys who yeah, have time on their hands. I guess so. So, after 40 years down these pathways, he finally, and with uh, Tico Bra, he gets even better data on the planets, and he finally just starts looking at the data, at which points he discovers elliptical orbits, which is in fact what what it really is and he in the in, and his science is amazing so this is a brilliant guy yeah obsessively trying to make the data fit the pattern right until he finally lets go of his preconception his confirmation bias yeah it just looks at the data and then he gets great science right that's how i feel about room 237. you think kubrick is a genius and therefore Everything Kubrick does is perfect, and everything Kubrick does is for a reason, and therefore every single thing in the movie must mean something, but you're arguing from like a, a, a false position. Okay, great. That's a fantastic, fantastic, uh, fantastic explanation for All you, right. for your defense of it. I love it, though, because I enjoy going deep dive into things like that and the intelligence that people have to have to create these connections, because... I've seen the movie multiple times, never made any of those connections as I was watching it. Sure. I just, it's a horror film. Because they're not there. Well, possibly. Um, yes. All right. On that note, yes. final thoughts on The Shining. Absolutely. It's, it was so great to go back to it, especially now during Halloween Halloween season. And it's such a good film. It still it still holds up. Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, they're all just so good. Scatman Crothers, also good in the film. Even the smaller character actors. Like, all of it does such a great job of getting you into the vibe of this really unsettling, scary situation that you have no idea what's coming, but you know that it is going to mess you up. And the film, still, the film is still so incredibly effective it does not show a lot of horror but what it does show is so powerful that it stays with you for a long time after the film yeah that's what i'm really curious about so for those of you who haven't seen the shining how's it hold up yeah particularly if you're a younger viewer who when you think of a horror film you know horror films have evolved so much and are right. so much their own genre right. and the shining is its own thing yes it is and i'm really curious does it suck you in the way it sucks me and john in right does it seem slow does it does it leave you with that sense of foreboding and yeah. dread and confusion that I feel? Um, does it seem cheesy? I would really love to hear from you. So um, you can always reach us on Facebook. That's the Cinephile C I N E dash F I L E S. You can reach me on Twitter at S R Morris. John, where can they reach you? You guys can always find me at the Roca says R O C H A S A Y S on Twitter and on Instagram. Super Animation Game Time, which is the other show I host with Yuri Lowenthal over on. Geek and Sundry's Twitch channel Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Uh, and yeah, and on Collider, every once in a while doing movie talk now on Fridays most of the time, uh, and then an occasional mailbag. And then the Walking Dead recap show, depending on when this comes out, which we do Sunday nights uh, at 7 o'clock right after the East Coast feed of The Walking Dead, the latest episode. And all of those shows are much lighter when it comes to <laughs> enlightenment philosophers or brain chemistry, sure. I believe. Sure. <laughs> um, as always, we would love to hear your reviews on iTunes. They really help the show a lot. They help us get discovered. They help move us up in the iTunes ranking. Yeah. And the more people that listen to this show, the more likely we're going to be able to do it forever and, <laughs> and ever, ever and ever. ever. <laughs> 
All right, that's it for this week. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles. Cinephiles.